Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let me encourage you to open to the book of 1 Thessalonians to um, that chapter, chapter 5. We'll be looking at those verses today. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, while you're turning there, I want us to think about a metaphor for the church. If you've read, if you've noticed as you've read through Scripture, there are a variety of pictures that we get that describe the church. Sometimes the church is described as a body. Christ is the head. We are the, the parts, and we each have different gifts and abilities. And we play a different role. Excuse me. We play a different role in that. At other times, we're seeing the church is described as the temple built together to be this holy place for, for God. But I want to give you another analogy, another metaphor that's not necessarily biblical, but has a lot of biblical elements. And that is, I want you to imagine the church as a climbing expedition, as a climbing expedition. So a group of people who might go and look at a perfectly good rock and decide, I want to go from down here to up there to see what's available up there. I want to go and, and do this. Well, on any climbing expedition, you're going to have some very experienced climbers, Right, these guys are going to do what's called lead climbing, and and most of the time, like when we did this in Saudi Arabia, there were uh, little bolts that you could clip into so you could be generally be safe. But but the lead climber would have a rope on his back, and and uh, they would he'd be climbing up, and there'd be someone kind of holding on, holding the rope below while he clips in and does all these things. And finally, the lead climber's job is to set the 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 material, set the hard, hardware up top so that everybody else, less experienced climbers, could climb up and do all those things. So you have the lead climber, and then you have the people who are helping, people who are on the belay. They're holding the rope, making sure that the lead climber doesn't fall, making sure all the other climbers don't fall. And then you have these other, the other climbers. They're, they're going about doing things. They're learning how to, how to get their body up this wall, if you will, figuring out finger holds and footholds and all these things. And down below, in addition to that belayer, that person holding the rope, there are all sorts of other people who can see things differently. So they might say, hey, no, put your hand up here a little bit more to the right. Put your foot there a little bit higher and to the left. Pull yourself up. Don't, don't let go with two hands at once because you'll fall. But thankfully, you've got a belayer, someone there. So there's all this instruction, all this encouragement happening. And then, as often happens, you know, only one person can climb on a rope at a time. So if you've got a big expeditionary group, a big climbing group, you're going to have people on the side just watching. And some people getting a little bit unruly. Maybe they're taking a nap. Maybe they're playing tag. Who knows? There's all sorts of things, exploring, doing things that, that could get distracting for others. And all the while, we're doing this, we're climbing this, recognizing that God has placed this perfectly good mountain there, and we get to enjoy the mountain for all its intricacies, all its beauty, the challenges that are there, the, the easiness of it. It's all there because God has put it there. So I want, in the back of your mind, be thinking about the church as this expeditionary, this climbing expedition in part because as the elders, you know, recently we talked about looking at maybe sending a team back to the Middle East to do some climbing with, with Eric and Lynn Bass. So we don't have any exact dates, but I want you to be thinking about, be praying about, hey, maybe, maybe is this something you could do? Maybe is this something you would consider venturing? You don't even have to have ever climbed, and you can be a part of this, uh, this trip whenever it happens. 
But I want you to be thinking about it because as we dive into this passage that Dan read for us, I think we're going to see a few, few things. Now, let me just kind of give us a little background. As you remember, over the last few weeks as we've studied the First Thessalonians, we've gleaned a bit of the environment in which this church was founded. It was a church that was planted in the midst of great persecution. <clears throat> but yet they flourished because they had a genuine faith. And upon news of their faith, Paul has been writing to encourage their walk and to instruct them in how to live. And now as he nears the end of this first letter, he's beginning to get to some more practical details. He's not just saying, hey, I want to encourage you in this. I want to help you in this. He's now saying, I want you to do this. And we saw this a little bit last week, as two weeks ago, as we considered the sanctification and how that gets lived in our lives. And then he's answering some questions as we looked at last week where he's dealing with the end times. But here, he seems to go through this litany of things. And if we could provide a theme for these few verses, that is this, that, that we as Christians should patiently pursue that which is good for one another, for outsiders, and for our spiritual lives. And we kind of see this in verse 15, the second half of verse 15, when it says, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we, we, we sort of see this thing, this idea of pursuing good, and yet that pursuit of good is going to look differently depending on the direction, depending on the person that we're seeking the good for. And so if we could divide this whole passage into three words, Paul seems to be telling the disciples, telling this church in Thessalonica that, that in pursuing good, it's going to look like honor to one group of people. It's going to look like help to another group of people. It's going to look like humility to another. Just like in that climbing expedition, a little bit of honor for that person who's going to do the lead climb, a little bit of help for that newbie who's, who's trying to get themselves up or trying to overcome that fear of heights. And then that humility, recognizing that the mountain itself, the mountain that God has placed there is, is, is beautiful and, and unique, and each run is going to have its own challenges. Humility, submitting to the will of God in that. So let's begin where Paul does. If you want to take notes, these are where the blanks begin in your outlines. And in verses 12 and 13, we see Paul really encouraging the Thessalonians to show honor toward their spiritual leaders. He writes this, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So in this young church, there were some who happened to rise to positions of leadership and it wasn't because of their wealth. It wasn't because of their social status. It was because of their work in the Lord. And Paul doesn't address this here, but it likely included their spiritual gifting. There was something that Timothy and the other leaders could see and say, yeah, you need to serve in this role. The church would really be benefited from that. But notice these guys demonstrated their, and proved themselves, demonstrated their leadership ability and their credentials in their labor, in their service to the Lord, the, the people who they sacrifice time and energy for the good of the congregation, but also in their instruction, in their admonition, and the way that they taught the word of God to people, people who would guide the congregation. And maybe it is that Paul, knowing that Timothy has just come from there, he's probably about to send him back. Maybe it's a subtle way of him saying, hey, listen, 
to Timothy. He might be young, but he's going to labor among you in a good way. So who are these people? Whether these are people with official roles like elders or pastors or deacons or teachers, or maybe they're just casual roles, people like a, a discipler or a spiritual parent, someone maybe that led you to the Lord and is over you, kind of helping you walk along in this walk. These are people that, that Jesus has placed in our lives, in the lives of, of the congregation here, in the lives of the folks there at and so in response to their service and their involvement into the lives of the Thessalonians, Paul urges the congregation with two things. He says, show them respect, acknowledge them for the work that they're doing, and then esteem them or honor them. Now, this is not to puff them up, but to acknowledge the weighty and important work that they do. Now, frankly, it's difficult to come to a passage like this as a pastor and preach it because it seems self-serving. To stand up there and say, yes, you should honor your pastors and elders. But I want to affirm you. I appreciate the way that you respect and esteem all those who serve. Whether the five of us who get to the privilege and honor of serving as elders or the deacons who work tirelessly behind the scenes doing different things, helping people at their homes, pushing buttons in the back, helping um, in 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 making sure our facilities look good. Then there are those ministry leaders, those people who are even now serving in Kids Connection, or those people who are serving, giving away food during the middle of the week, or there are those community group leaders who are opening their homes and sacrificing time and energy in order to pour into us. And then there's that group of people that lead us in worship each week. Speaking specifically as elders... We are not perfect, but we are seeking to model what we teach and prayerfully seek to lead our church in a way that leads toward flourishing and growth in a variety of ways. And I, I want to just say, speaking specifically about this transition to community groups, I appreciate the way that so many of you said, hey, yeah, I'm all on board. I love this. Let's go forward. And then some of you have been like, oh, this is painful. I've never done this. Neither have we. And you've, you've expressed your concern and frustration and then said, but if this is where God is leading us, then I'm going to be in. And I appreciate the way that you have shown deference and honor in that way. Thank you. Because I believe you're, you demonstrate obedience to what reveals, what Scripture reveals here. And I want to encourage you. We're not limited in our bylaws to five elders. Paul writes to Timothy, he said, hey, those who aspire to be an elder aspire to a good thing. If, if that is something that God is placing on your heart, you feel like, oh, I might have some things I can contribute to the health of this body, then let me encourage you to reach out. Let me know. We'll walk through some things. Or, you know, the deacons, they're always looking for more guys with different, more men and women with different gifts who can serve and, and, and support the work of this body. I want to encourage you to be thinking about that. But in addition to asking the Thessalonians to show honor toward their spiritual leaders, Paul turns the conversation to each other and transitions from a request. Notice at the beginning, he said, I ask you to do this with those who are spiritually leading you. Now he, he goes to a command. He says, I urge you. 
I command you in many ways, instructing them in how they should pursue the good as they help, show help toward the struggling. As they show help toward the struggling. It seems like there will always be, be, be times in our lives when, when we will find people in our community of faith who are struggling in a variety of ways. And Paul provides some instruction here in how we should handle those who may need a sort of hand up from time to time. And he categorizes them in three different ways. But look at what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So Paul categorizes, as I said, in three groups. He, he first talks about the idle, or some translations refer to them as the unruly. And we don't want to think about each other very much as either of these. The idle might be those who are a little bit lazy. The unruly might be those who are a little bit disruptive. But then there are the faint-hearted. And they need a different kind of help than the idle or unruly do. And then the third category is the weak. In each of these, Paul provides a specific way that we are to act toward our struggling brother or sister. So, first of all, for the idle, he says, give them instruction. Provide instruction for the idle. As I said, these are not necessarily lazy people. Other translations refer to them as the disruptive, the unruly, the disorderly, the irresponsible. Hopefully that wouldn't identify any of us, but I'm sure there are times when we can all be a little bit, when I can be a little bit unruly, disruptive, disorderly. And the point is that these brothers and sisters are acting in a way that is not helpful or edifying for the body as a whole and may be destructive in their lives or to the church as a whole. And so Paul's imperative here is that we instruct them or we admonish them. It's not necessarily a lecture. I mean, no, no child likes it when your parent stands over you, right? Arms crossed, and you will not do this. But in gentleness, notice what he talks about it. In gentleness, also with patience, and we'll get to that in a little bit. A gentle rebuke given in love. The idea is that we help them to see that their actions or inactions have consequences. I think it's also important to note that it's not the leaders alone who are doing that. I think the leaders should do this some, but it's everybody. It's one another. Time and time again, Paul, in this, in this passage, in, in the translation that I'm using, he writes brothers. In, in Greek, it could be brothers and sisters. And it's, it's a really, he's referring to the entire body. This is something that all of us get to do to instruct those who are struggling in this way. Gene Green wrote, he said that while personal correction has almost become anathema in the church today, ancient opinion was that correction by others was profitable for a person's well-being. So it's up to us, up to each of us, when we see a brother or sister struggling in this way, maybe we can take them aside and say, hey, come on, man, that's not becoming of a believer. That's not becoming of a Christian. Providing instruction will take a bit of courage. It'll take a lot of love, and it'll take a measure of grace. Receiving, being on the receiving end, if you come to me and say, Joel, you are out of line in this, it's going to take some humility to say, yo, yeah, you are probably right. I am out of line, and I need to get my act together. 
In addition to providing guidance for how to address the idol, Paul urges that we provide encouragement for the faint-hearted. And this encouragement could be in a form of comfort coming alongside just walking with someone. I think this is a, a little bit why uh, you know, Paul never does anything alone. He always has someone coming with him, especially someone younger, someone more immature in the faith in order to help them and more in order to provide some encouragement. Encouragement can have a profound impact in the lives of others. Larry Crabb said, Encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian, even when life is rough. And another author said, Encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. We all need that breath of fresh air, that breath of encouragement, that courage that maybe we're lacking because we are faint-hearted. There's something about encouragement that gives us a boost to get started on something we've been putting off or to confront something we've been timid to address. But finally, Paul uh, includes the command to support the weak. Where the faint-hearted might lack courage, the weak lack ability. They lack the strength. They lack the wherewithal even to do something. I think this support is something we get to literally see week in and week out. As, as, for instance, Jim, as you walk with Annabelle on your arm, helping her, stabilizing her, as other folks come alongside to help them, that is helping someone who needs a little bit of help. Or watching the way that Kim or Joyce get to guide Nancy, being her eyes, helping her get to places that she can't be. But spiritually speaking, we are all going to need support at different times. There may be areas in our lives when we are too weak to act. Maybe it's because of an illness. Maybe it's because of a physical limitation that needs accommodation. Maybe it's because of a besetting sin. Paul, or in the, the writer of Hebrews says that, um, you know, they, we all have these sins that entangle us. The old, you know, the King James refers to them as besetting sins. And sometimes we need someone to help us untangle us, uh, untangle ourselves from these sins. And that is the help that we can provide. Maybe it's a lack of understanding regarding how to live the Christian life, which may simply mean we need to be spend some time together one-on-one -on -one just to understand and read the Word. And I want to encourage you, if you're, whether you feel like you need the help or whether you feel like you can provide that, let me encourage you. Maybe it's, it's time to say, hey, I would love to be in an accountability relationship with you. You see a brother or sister in need, or you see someone that you respect in the Lord, say, hey, can we meet together? Can we read scripture? In fact, there's a really good book out on the book nook um, called One-to-One -One Bible Reading, and it's, it's designed to be something that you could open and guide, guide you as you read the Word of God, as you help people understand it, as you help people discern, here's how I need to live in light of what the Word of God says. And now one of the challenges of Paul's teaching here is that as we instruct, encourage, and support others, it's quite possible that they won't receive it well. We don't always, we don't always have that attitude of humility that says, oh, yes, I'm ready for you to correct me, right? I'm ready for you to tell me how wrong I am. And so Paul says, he says, to show patience for all to show patience for all. God has eternity to do his work in our lives. 
We get to be as instruments in each other's lives in that process. And maybe it's only for a time. Maybe it's only for a, a day or a week or a season. Our job is not to fix or solve the problems, but to be instruments in God's hands as he fixes what needs to be fixed in each other's lives. Charles Spurgeon said, patience, patience, you are always in a hurry, but God is not. Show patience toward one another. So Paul also kind of, in addition to telling, hey, be patient, he's also counteracting some things that are going on in their culture. In verse 15, he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's a, a natural tendency that we want to retaliate. When someone does something wrong to us, we want to get back. But yet, as we read in in Scripture, Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is something that we wrestle with in our society. I think back then, in that Greek culture, a lot of the commentaries kind of pointed to the idea that, well, if if someone offends you, you need to get back at them in that same way. And yet we see this happening in our culture, too. We see it happening online. We see it happening as we, as we get into our own camps. Maybe it's politically or socially or culturally. We're, we're in these different places where we're so divided that we can't even have a good conversation with each other. We're watching this happen on Capitol Hill right now. As the House of Representatives can't get their act together because they can't have a conversation. This week I listened to a podcast by Russell Moore and he was interviewing a lady who wrote a book on high conflict, that conflict that gets so embedded that we just can't see each other. And she uh, alluded to something like the Hatfield and McCoys that was was a conflict that that took place in Kentucky at the end of the 1800s. These families were so hateful toward each other that they would constantly fight and bicker and go back and forth. And finally, one of the patriarchs of that group said, I'm just done. I'm tired of fighting. He said, I'm I'm out. We see that in the drama of Romeo and Juliet as the Capulets and Montagues want to just fight and fight and fight and fight. Nobody remembers. And he said, that this author said that because there are some conflicts that are so entrenched that at some point in time, it's just going to take someone else to step back with a little bit of patience, a little bit of grace and humility and say, hey, how can we get past this? Not repaying, violent, try, not trying to get vengeance, but pursuing good of the other person, pursuing good of the relationship. I, th- I think this is where we get to pursue the good for each other in the congregation, for everyone, people outside of the church. So I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, recognize this, that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not just I mean, the biggest thing is that your sins are atoned for. We sang about that earlier. The, the biggest thing is now you get to have eternal life. You're in this eternal relationship with God. But you know what? You're not in this alone. You get a whole body, a new family of friends, a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage you, who can challenge you, who can help you walk in this journey toward holiness and godliness. And so after asking the congregation to honor those in spiritual authority and urging them to act in appropriate ways toward the struggling, Paul concludes this section 
by urging the Thessalonians and us to demonstrate humility toward the Lord. We see this in verse 16 to 22. Now, in this passage, you could read over those verses and you won't find humility there. You won't find humble being in that text. But it seems like this is our attitude that we need to show as we respond to the circumstances that God allows in our lives and as we respond to the way that God is communicating to us through his spirit. And so let's look at these in, in those two little groups. In the circumstances that God allows, Paul writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. John Stott in his commentary noted that Paul may have had in mind their corporate worship. This is something we are all to do together because these are all second person plural verbs. He's saying, y'all, all y'all, Rejoice. All y'all give thanks. All y'all pray. That idea of rejoicing always, Stephen Runge says, rejoicing is an activity we choose to do. It's not an emotion. If we choose to rejoice, it means we are choosing not to do something else. There are circumstances in our lives, in the life of the church, where it's easy to rejoice. It's easy, as as, uh, Carl prayed earlier, it's easy to rejoice with our our brothers and sisters at Grace Harbor Church. Yes, look at these baptisms that are happening. Yes, praise God. Or maybe when we get to send a missionary or a mission team or the successful event like Rise Against Hunger or Operation Christmas Child, those things are easy for us to rejoice in because we see the good work of God through us. But there are also circumstances in which it feels practically impossible to rejoice. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's financial turmoil. Maybe it's strife with a family member or friend. And yet we are called to rejoice always. James in his letter said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In the book of Acts, our brothers and sisters in Christ responded to persecution with rejoicing by saying in uh, Acts 5.41, when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is a choice. It sounds so un-American to rejoice at being ridiculed, to rejoice at being offended, to rejoice at being hurt. And yet they did. But Paul says, y'all pray continually, be in a constant in, a, in an attitude of constant communication with God. There is a persistent element to this as though we might say, keep on praying. Or if you remember the, the, um, what, that fish dory that just says, keep, just keep swimming, just keep, just keep praying, just keep praying. Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow as an instructive lesson on persistent prayer. But there's this ongoing element, this constant conversation. Everything we do in corporate worship and in church life should be bathed in and accomplished in an attitude of prayer. How are we doing? Conversing with God. But finally, he says, give thanks. All y'all give thanks. When things are good, give thanks. When When times are tough, give thanks. When sickness happens, give thanks. When death comes, Give thanks. When finances are thin, give thanks. When people respond to the gospel, give thanks. When the gospel falls on deaf ears, give thanks in all circumstances. 
I mentioned this, I may have mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but Corey Ten Boom and her sister, when they were brought into one of the concentration camps, they were in this place and, and Corey immediately noticed that there were fleas all over the place. They're just, she's just like, ugh. And, and I, I, it gives me the willies just thinking about that. And yet her sister, who had kind of frail health anyways, was like, but God says give thanks in all circumstances, so let's thank God for the fleas. God, thank you for the fleas. She didn't find out, Corey didn't find out until months later that the fleas were what was keeping the guards out of their dormitory. The guards would go in all the other ones and harass and give those people a hard time, but the fleas kept the guards out of theirs. Thank you for the fleas. Sometimes it takes a little bit of gratitude before we fully understand why God is allowing things. But notice, look, look real briefly at verse 18. Paul concludes that verse by saying, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And I think what he's referring to is not just giving thanks, but also prayer and rejoicing. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the will of God is our sanctification, and now it's the will of God for us to rejoice always. It's the will of God for us to pray continually. It's the will of God for us to give thanks in all circumstances. It seems to be that we need to, we get to have this humble acknowledgement that whatever situation we find ourselves in, God is at work. Romans 8 28 says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So in this, we can rejoice and pray and give thanks. But finally, Paul uh, encourages us to demonstrate humility in relation to the communication that the Spirit makes. Verses 19 to 22 says, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I believe that when you and I become, became a Christian, we are each endowed with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The scripture tells us that he gifts us for certain acts of, acts of service, acts of work in the church. We're all gifted differently, but equally endowed with the Holy Spirit. I think we're all aware differently of how the Spirit is wanting to lead us and move in our lives. And I think in the early church, you know, these guys often met in homes and, and maybe they had a little bit of a loose liturgy. It wasn't like they started with a call to worship and then had an opening hymn or, or that gathering song like we might have. And you know, it may have been a little bit looser. And so they're hearing from one another, hearing each other say, you know, as I was praying this week, the Holy Spirit laid this on my heart. And so they had people speaking up at different times. And whereas our structure might be a bit more formalized, I hope that it is equally spirit-led. And I want to encourage us, maybe it's in the community groups where we'll see this more clearly, where as we're discussing the Word of God together, it may be that the Holy Spirit is going to move in one of us in such a way that we can say, hey, this, this, it seems like you might be wrong here. It looks like it's saying this. And it looks like this might be the way that we convey this, way that we understand this text. We need to, and Paul encourages the church here to, to test everything, to make sure that it's consistent with the word of God. But we need to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit might be leading. It may be 
that in a group, the Spirit might lead Luke to provide a word of encouragement for another brother or sister in Christ. It may be that Kate has an insight or an application into the word that someone else in her group hasn't seen. We need to pay attention to and allow the Spirit to speak through us in each other's lives. So Paul closes down his letter to the Thessalonians. He he provides this litany of instructions for us and them. And he does so helping us to understand how we should act, providing a bit of a lesson in etiquette. Honor those who are spiritually over you. Help those who need help in the ways that they need help. Show humility in the way that God is allowing things in our lives and in what he is communicating. In all of this, Paul seems to be urging us to pursue good and seek to do good to everyone. And thinking back about that whole idea of that climbing expedition, we're going to, at different times, we're all going to get to act and move in different ways. Maybe at one point in time, you will be called to be that, that, that lead climber who's going to prepare the way for everyone else. Then honor will be due you because you're serving the church, serving the group in that way. Maybe, maybe it's, you're acting as a deacon, holding the rope for other people or going out doing different types of ministry. And honor will be due you. Maybe you're on the climb and you're, you're afraid, like me, you're afraid of heights and you just can't get past that one little ledge and you're so fearful of falling that you need someone else to say, hey, you can do it. Keep going. Just put your hand over here. Don't give up. Keep going. Or maybe there are those times when you're going to feel a little rambunctious. You're going to be messing around the feet of those holding the rope, making it dangerous for everyone else. And so you'll need someone, I'll need someone to come alongside and say, hey, cut it out. This is not how we act. Paul encourages us to show honor to whom honor is due, give help to those who need it, and act humbly toward the Lord in whatever he allows and however he speaks. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word.